Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Nudie Brains Podcast. My name is Emily, and I'm the host. When I initially started this podcast, the overall goal was to highlight uh, minorities in science, diversity, and so far I feel like I did, you know, an okay job at that, uh, especially highlighting Latinx community members. Um, but during quarantine, I've really had an opportunity to reflect on just my, <clears throat> I guess, internal biases and interactions. And even though I've never considered myself a racist, I also haven't necessarily taken the appropriate steps to be anti-racist, and I've spent this time doing a lot of research on my own, a lot of reading, and so that's why I'm super excited for today's podcast guest, because Nia is not only now a really good friend of mine, um, she's an awesome marine scientist, and she is black, so she comes from a background where she's experienced a lot of injustices, and I'm really excited to share her story with you today. Because if you haven't done this research into how you can be a better ally and things that you can do to help uh, foster a space that is is comfortable and gives these people a voice, um, I hope that this can be a good start for you to see just some of the things that she's experienced because it's horrible. We talk about... Um, things that happen to her in the education field, and even, you know, implicit built-in things that she's had to experience. Like, she survived Hurricane Katrina, and we talked about sort of the natural history that led to Hurricane Katrina, and possibly how it could have been avoided, or at least lessened the impact. Um, So this podcast is pretty heavy at times, but Nia is an awesome scientist and awesome human being, so I really hope that you enjoy this episode. And don't forget to subscribe and leave a review and follow me on Instagram at Emily the Marine Biologist. So now here is Nia. Thanks so much, guys. So hi, Nia. Thank you so much for being on my podcast today. Of course. Thank you so much for having me. (laughs) So I have to start by asking, what is your favorite invertebrate? My favorite invertebrate is the uh, horseshoe crab. Those are my favorite. I love them so much. They're so, so interesting. And the fact that they're still here with us and they seem to be the most simple animal always amazes me. (laughs) Yeah, so simple. And they're super important to people too, right? Because we need them for vaccines. Have you seen them in person before? Yes, I've actually I've worked with them uh, most of last year. Yeah, I got to work with them. I, w- I would teach a little touch lab with the uh, horseshoe crabs. It's always interesting seeing how the young the youngest kids would react <laughs> to see like the horseshoe crab crawling around. But I, I used to work with them. That's so cool. And I've mm-hmm. you know I've stalked you a little bit on social media, and so I know <laughs> a little bit that you have just done research in so many different fields and you've just done a lot with your life so far. Do you want to talk a little bit about the research that you've done, what you've been involved with, all that Mm -hmm. kind of stuff? Oh, sure. So my most recent research was again for my, uh, my senior project, our thesis that we need to do to graduate, where I, uh, went in, I just want to see the coastal impacts of vulnerable communities. Like around the world. And I was like, wait, why don't I focus on New Orleans where I'm from with my experience with Hurricane Katrina? And so, and then I found out that there are other hurricanes that made that hurricane worse. And then like all the, you know, all the environmental issues that made that worse. 
Uh, and then before that, my research uh, took place very close in Savannah, Georgia, where I studied the unfortunate, um, what's it called, business approval to allow uh, businesses to dredge up the Savannah River down there and all the old chemical spills that were preserved were brought up. So that was impacting a lot of animals down there. So that's what the research I did down there with grass shrimp um, and the anoxic layer over there in Savannah, Georgia. And then before that, let's see, my most notable research would be on uh, a big glacial deposit on the East Coast that is making the water very, very hard. It was actually for geology. And uh, people were trying to figure out why they're having so many uh, aches and pains. It was because their water wasn't really filtered correctly. So they were getting excess magnesium and calcium in their body and it was causing health issues. So that's just my three off the top of my head that I've done in the last few years. <laughs> that is so cool. So many different projects. And I know you're also really interested in mammals and sharks. Um, yes. where, where does all that come from? Oh, goodness. So this goes back all the way to my childhood. <laughs> um, I know uh, the author of The Magic School Bus just passed. And Joanna, she is uh, the reason why I'm even in marine biology. I remember third grade, Mr. Bruno's class, he taught us with the Scholastic um, Magic School Bus series. Like they're like field guidebooks for kids. And it's just the section on sharks and whales and large marine animals really just just left such an impact on me at eight years old such an impact I remember going home and teaching my siblings like they would sit in, in the living room they would sit on the floor as I taught them from the magic school bus oh. um, book and ever since then like like you said on one of your Instagram posts I want to be like Eliza Thornberry and Miss Frizzle yeah so I just I just ever since then I just fell in love with the ocean always always attracted to the ocean always attracted to marine mammals whales just oh I, I, I love whales so much. I love all marine mammals, I mean animals, but whales and sharks, megafauna in general have a special place in my heart. Do you have a favorite <laughs> type of whale? That, oh, that so Sorry, hard. Sorry, hard question, I know. It's okay. Um, it has to be between uh, the minky whale or the false killer whale or, or the beluga whale. And that's all I can lower, that's all I can shrink it down to right now. <laughs> so cool. I've I've seen a minky whale before. I mm-hmm. don't think I've ever seen a false killer whale or a beluga. Mm-hmm. But that is so cool. I I false killer whales are tough, are tough to find. And we're only getting like more footage again because of drone technology. And I haven't seen a beluga yet. But I had the book as a little girl, Baby Beluga. I don't know if yeah. anyone remembers that series. And my mom used to read it to me every night. And that's how I fell. Another way I fell in love with whales. <laughs> that's so cool. That's so special too. Well, that's awesome. Thanks for sharing that with us. Of course. Thank you. So now I, I want to jump into some heavier topics now that yeah. we've you know, talked about inverts and things like that, because our world right now is in so much turmoil. Mm-hmm. Um, and I have seen your experiences online mm-hmm. as a woman of color, and it mm-hmm. just breaks my heart to see the things that you've gone through. And so if you don't mind sharing some of those experiences that other Mm -hmm. people can see really like how, how tough it's been and how much you've gone through to become a marine scientist. Um, Mm -hmm. So we'll start by going through some of the experiences and then I'd love to also delve into what can marine scientists do to make sure that marine science is a place for all people, Mm -hmm. inviting people of color into our, into, you know, the circle and just making marine science just a, a 
better place because we need all the help we can get. So yeah. <laughs> let's first talk about some of your experiences, if you don't mind. Okay. Um, for me, I've always been frustrated because I feel like, like as a kid, I went through this just behemoth of a natural disaster, literally a behemoth of a storm that is based in marine science, atmospheric science, climate science, uh, with Hurricane Katrina in New Orleans, and then like the environmental impacts and the marine science that was Hurricane Katrina was never, was always at the forefront of my mind. But when I would enter like these environmental spaces or marine biology and science spaces, that was like always, it wasn't something that was always on the forefront. Um, and, and I, I don't know, I felt like, like stories, like we, we need to hear stories of people who have experienced these tragic events because, uh, it's going to shed better light on that, if that makes sense. So I was like, okay, it was, it was always like, whenever Hurricane Katrina was brought up, it was brought up as a statistic, uh, which it is. But I was like, hey, um, I was actually there. I seen how climate change is going, I always, how climate change is always, is going to impact us face to face because I actually survived it and not as many people survived it as um, they should have. So I always felt like kind of isolated and left out because I felt like I was always coming from a more intense level than other people. And I feel like that kind of pushed, maybe it pushed people away because I I felt like I had a stronger urgency for a lot of, um, like a lot of issues, if that makes sense. Like I know me being an animal lover my entire life, I was like, yes, this is extremely important for our animals, but we also need to talk about the people who are vulnerable, who are left out of these conversations that and who aren't necessarily thought of when we have these conversations. Um, and then just that, uh, some of the initial bias, switching over to like more the academic side, some of the initial bias that can come with being a woman of color in STEM, um, being very, very underestimated, there you go. Just, just not taken seriously and not heard. Um, professors, I've only had this happen like once though, but I've heard of other professors doing this, just saying like you, like you as a black girl, like by the stats, like you're not going to do well in my class. I'm just letting you know, like that's, that's the stats against you. So I don't expect you to do well. And we were, we were speaking, some of us were speaking online about our experiences in undergrad recently. And um, I actually have another experience where a professor actually almost got me expelled. And I didn't know because she said, I verbatim, I wrote too well. Um, as a black girl, I had to have cheated. Uh-uh. She's like, you don't write this well. I was like, oh, okay. Oh, goodness. <laughs> and then I found out later that she did that to a lot of her uh, black students as well. So just that, that initial bias, we're already coming in. Uh, we have to break through, once I break through your bias of me, then I can show my skills as a scientist or as someone who's into the marine science field. And I don't, uh, I read an article recently saying like racism gets in the way of like climate change, like fighting for climate change, because that's a, we have to break through the initial bias, the racism, the unknown prejudices that other people have of us, those assumptions. And I had to like, once I break that through, then you can see me as a person. Once I break through and show quote that I'm a quote good one, then you 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 can t- start taking me seriously. And then I have to do that for every person that has these uh, assumptions. So that was kind of a tangent. I don't know if I answered your you did um, you did that I, question. I just 
I just can't, that, it breaks my heart that mm. somebody would think that and, and that mm. somebody would act that way towards you, yeah. but it's happening all over the country. It's happening mm-hmm. all over the world to multiple yeah. people. And that's just unacceptable at this point. Yeah. Do you, I guess, going back through your experiences, how could somebody who's not a person of color been a better ally for you in, in some of those circumstances? Oh, I, something that always like kind of hurt me was when I would express my frustrations and they would just be met with like blank faces of, oh, I don't do that. But you're friends with the people who do that to me. Yeah. So like, are you, are you checking them on that? Because you, you, you're friends with the exact people. That was my uh, issue in my earlier undergrad years. It was like, oh, you guys know what I'm going through in the same department, but you're friends with literally all of these people. So where is that accountability of saying, hey, you cannot, you, you, you can't do this to other people. You, you cannot isolate someone based on their, on their race or their gender <laughs> yeah. because you have outdated views on whether that person should be here or not. And that's something else I've come across. It's like, I have to, you know, have to earn, especially earn my space, um, place as a black woman, and then um, prove that I have what it takes to stay there. Like extra, like I feel like every mistake that I make is just like proof that, oh, she shouldn't be here. She shouldn't be here. See, black people underperform. They shouldn't be here. Instead of just me making a human mistake that everybody makes. (laughs) Just just being human and growing. So just holding accountability instead of saying, well, that's not me, so it's not my problem. I'm your friend, but you're friends with the people who do this to me. So that doesn't, it only goes one way in that that aspect. Just making sure that everyone is treated as a human and that humility is in place when interacting with people. Yeah. Especially like people of color, yeah. Yeah, and definitely like speaking up and and making those changes. Yeah, Mm -hmm. I think that's a really good point. That's a really good point. And you- I'm saying it's easy because it's not easy. Like even me is like standing up for myself has never, I was especially shy and then all these experiences forced me to break out of my little shy bubble. Um, because in my experience, I've been kind of punished for speaking out um, against like speaking up for myself and then no- noticing that everyone is really, really, really like not interacting with me because I spoke up and defended myself. So it's, it's not, it's not saying it's easy for anyone. It's because it's not. <laughs> yeah, definitely not. Definitely not. And I know you've done research all over the country and even, right. You did some in Baja, if I'm not mistaken. Right. So yes. <laughs> have you experienced, have, have some parts of the country been easier, have some been harder or is it just people are racist everywhere? Like everyone needs to step up. It that is a great question because it definitely does vary. Um, I in California, I've had the best the best experiences when I've done some work out here. In my recent work, California has been the best. Um, where I was, Pennsylvania, ooh, <laughs> that was rough. Um, Georgia, ironically, although it was, I was working with a lot of uh, people color, uh, professors of color, mm-hmm. and especially black women professors that I have never seen in that volume, we still with the surrounding area were felt like we were, um, we were very antagonized in the area because it's the South, it's Georgia. It's, I'm from, I'm from the South, but I know, I know that extra, that, that 
I, it's heavier there. There's a certain type of racism in the South. But um, I, I, I've debated this before and I don't feel like I'm a unwanted guest when I'm in California. And even when I was in Baja, I never felt like I was an unwanted guest in something that I should not be in. When I was in Pennsylvania and and with some people in Georgia, I felt like I was an unwanted guest and that I should not be there because I was taking this the spot of someone who was more qualified or automatically by default, someone who was white, basically. And that was kind of made clear. So that's in California. And then and when I was in Baja, Mexico, I had an, ama- an amazing time. Over here on in the East Coast and the South, I definitely felt my skin color. I, I felt my identity more over there. Mm-hmm. It was antagonized more. Yeah. Oh, mm-hmm. Gosh. If you had advice for a young person, especially a person of color who wants to break into the marine science field, what would you say to them? What is one piece of advice? Oh, um, do not stop just because other people think you shouldn't be there because they're wrong. They're wrong. Uh, like you said earlier, the ocean needs all of us. <laughs> uh, the ocean needs all of us. Uh, this planet needs all of us. And we do have a very rich history, a painful history, but we do have a very rich history connected to the ocean as well, depending on your background. But um, don't stop just because people think that you don't belong there. And this is me kind of speaking to my younger self, because you are extremely passionate about the ocean. You deserve to be there just based off of your passion. And again, there's enough space for you as well. There's more than enough space for all of us. <laughs> all of us, um, and just really cultivate. I had to cultivate like a, basically a homeostasis, a, a balance of how to care for myself when I am triggered by these um, certain events. Actually, right before uh, we started, I, I saw something on Instagram. I was like, oh no, <laughs> no. <laughs> so it's like, it's it will be frustrating because people are always going to validate why you shouldn't be here and especially try to scientifically validate why you shouldn't be here and they're wrong. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I don't, don't, don't internalize anything that comes from a place of uh, hatred and elitism and uh, punching down that, that punching down mechanism. I don't know if there's an ism for that, but don't internalize anything that comes from, that place of negativity, find the people who honor your humanity versus the people who try to degrade it. So that will be my advice to a younger person. It Sometimes it gets hard, but there are enough ocean nerds out there who will accept you. I guarantee. I guarantee. <laughs> yeah. And I, I think it's especially powerful what you said. Don't internalize something that comes from a place of hate. Mm-hmm. That's really important. That's yes. really important. So I've heard statistics before or, or read that people of color will be more heavily impacted by climate change or, or they'll be impacted first by climate change. Yeah. Is this something that you agree with? Is this something that you have witnessed? Mm-hmm. And is it something that you think should be a call to action to people of color to, you know, push through this, these injustices that we're seeing and come and join us in the marine science world? Mm-hmm. Um. Yes, from my experience, and then put a little asterisk, not saying that this will not negatively impact um, white people who live on the co- who live in coastal areas, um, but that's where class comes in. That is where class comes in because, especially, unfortunately, in the United States, we have a very 
very, um, we demonize our uh, lower income <laughs> communities. So um, I'm gonna get back to that though. Um, actually, no, I'll go forth. Like with Hurricane, no, no, not with Hurricane Katrina, I'm sorry, with uh, the BP oils bill. Yes. Um, I know a lot of coastal uh, white communities who were lower income were completely left out of the conversation on that uh, because again, class, there's class will play into the, how our capitalist structure in the United States plays out. Um, operates. But yes, like also how you said, yes, from my experience, from my research, what I've seen is um, people of color who are, who live on the coast um, around the world or who live on islands are at the front lines of climate change, unfortunately. Like the island of Kiribati, the island of um, Isle de Jean Charles, which is a barrier island off, what's left of a barrier island off of the coast of Louisiana. Um, And then because we, we have to do with the sea level rise. Like it's more immediate. It's more immediate. It's right in our face. We have to do with sea level rise. We have to deal with tropical storms. We have to deal with erosion. And unfortunately, uh, a lot of a lot of plants are coastal for some reason. Uh, and a lot, of, a lot of chemical plants are, are coastal. I know a big lawsuit just opened up in Louisiana again for Cancer Alley, Louisiana. But I will get to that. Um, oh, so I was actually kind of trying not to fight people in this last month with the resurgence or the public resurgence with Black Lives Matter movement, I wanted to try to explain to someone that um, there's not as many like Black people in the United States as people think, I think, because she kept saying that we were the majority, so it makes sense that we would die at higher rates to police brutality. I was like, no, we are 13% of the population. And number two, we only have population centers on the East Coast and the South. For historical reasons. Um, that's where most of the Black communities are that have, again, strong populations. So all the coastal issues are going to impact impact us at a higher rate because that's where we mostly are. Um, so again, yeah, like what from my research and from what I've seen, coastal groups, island nations are at the forefront and it is scary and it's happening fast. Um, yes, that was another tangent, but yeah, I agree from what you, from with that question. (laughs) No, I think, I think that's right. And I mean, you know, these big changes that Mm -hmm. are, that need to happen in order for us to slow down climate change and protect Mm -hmm. these populations and protect our planet. What can we do? Is there anything we can do specifically to help poor communities or, you know, communities that are primarily people of color? Like what can Mm -hmm. we Mm -hmm. So, uh, great question. Um, These, with the environmental movement, this knowledge or this this momentum for coastal communities especially has not, it's not not anything new from my experience. It's been um, talked about for almost almost about the last hundred years. It's just that these areas are also resource-rich. Are, are, are rich resources. Um, so corporations are going to do whatever they can to kind of keep their hold on these communities. And also, unfortunately, in poor communities and in uh, communities of color, they're going to, you know, be more lenient with environmental laws, with like dumping and dropping their chemical spills, wherever they want. So what we can do is um, give attention to groups that are out there, uh, should have pulled up a link for this, but groups that are on the forefront of um, of these uh, 
of these topics. And then I'm, I've been contemplating this for like the last two months, but trying to call, trying to somehow shake the justice system to do something about these situations. Because uh, again, with Cancer Alley, Louisiana, just to give a small little tidbit, it's an 85 mile um, stretch in Louisiana from Baton Rouge to New Orleans. And unfortunately it's lined, it's along the Mississippi River and it is lined with I cannot remember. I think it's over 200 petrochemical plants. It is a majority black area of Louisiana and they've been filing um, lawsuits for decades. And then the justice department is like, well, I don't see any, I don't see any, uh, I don't see any issues. You can't prove this. And they keep providing a proof, <laughs> but they're like, Oh, you, you can't prove this. You can't prove this because it's a, it's an area that brings in a lot of money. It brings in a lot of money. So, that's something, unfortunately, that we have to fight um, is that we're fighting money, big, big, big money. And that is never an easy fight, no matter what you're fighting against. So always brainstorming and again, getting, because I, I still get stumped with this question. Um, learning from the groups, I can link it. I can send it to you so we can Yeah, post, send me the uh, link, and I link in the description and then everyone. Okay, perfect. Yeah. Um, to, to to get involved with groups who have been doing this work because I still get stumped by this question because people have been trying to do something about this for decades and then they have so much pushback because again, these areas are rich for resources. So that's, that's a tough, that's a tough question Yeah, because all the, we, there are systems in place to do something about it. And there are things that are the right things to do that people have been taking for years and they've been getting shut down. So it's, uh, <laughs> It's, it's, that's a tough question. Yeah. Sorry. I, I wanted to warm you up to that yeah, question. Okay. So that <laughs> it's, it, uh, yeah, there's just, it's just such a big problem. And, and mm-hmm. just like climate change, right? We need a big solution. We're mm-hmm. fighting so many different things. Yeah. But we need to figure it out. <laughs> we need to do And it's it. like, for, for me, um, I did a lot of research on mangrove forests and it's like, wow, why aren't we taking advantage of the, why aren't we replanting mangrove forests? It's, it will be a very quick and relatively cheap uh, mitigation step, uh, bringing back that blue carbon. But guess what? That will completely interfere with the shrimping and fishing industry, which are two multi-billion dollar entities by themselves. So I was doing research and I was like, so we can't, <laughs> Uh, we can't replant these mangrove forests because it will get in the way of the fishing industry. And that's so frustrating. <laughs> it is so frustrating because it would really, really help with storm surge. It would protect so many communities. It would really help take carbon out of, out of our atmosphere and it will help bring back a lot of animal populations, but there's an industry in a way. <laughs> yeah. And I don't know a lot about the natural history of the South. So I apologize. If this is a <laughs> stupid question, but um, could were like, were there mangrove forests or just natural things that could have prevented some of the destruction that occurred during Hurricane Katrina mm-hmm. and during some of the other natural disasters that have happened down there? Excellent question. And again, that was a huge part of my, um, of the research I did. Uh, so yeah, so um, Louisiana used to be, used to have the highest uh, mangrove forest pop, uh, rates on the North American continent, I believe. I think second was Florida. Um, it used to be dense with mangrove forests. So mangrove forests, oh, for those of you listening, are coastal forests. Um, and they are some extremely strong trees. They can live in both freshwater and saltwater. They actually thrive in saltwater. And what they do is that they help take carbon out 
of our atmosphere and sequester it, meaning they bring it back into the ocean in a very healthy way. It's a part of the carbon cycle. They provide um, nurseries for many, many oceanic species around the world, namely shrimp. That's why they're being deforested is because of the shrimp that live there. Um, lots of fish that are also eaten around the world and lots of sharks and manatees um, off the coast of Florida. So, there, <laughs> so there's so many animals that use these areas as nurseries and um, what they did, they also held up that marshland, um, that, that, that fertile land along the coast of Louisiana. And when we um, destroyed them, because these are tough trees to knock down because their roots are in underwater, under the ocean water, um, that also caused the coast of Louisiana to erode and all, all around the south, but the coast of Louisiana to erode and sink. Hence why New Orleans, that's the reason why New Orleans is six feet underwater. Great, I know. <laughs> I have. I don't have anxiety every hurricane season, I promise. <laughs> so, uh, so the mangrove forest, they basically think of concrete. They were like the concrete of Louisiana's coast. And then we took that away so we can shrimp um, and fish, fish and um, catch shrimp faster. And then what they do, mangrove forests also heavily stop the storm surge, the, the flood that comes before before the hurricane or tropical storm hits land, they was it would slow that down a lot and absorb a lot of that water. And um, if it's not there, it's it's that's a shield for the um, the communities with the mangrove forest. It would act as a shield, and then also the barrier islands, but those have been eroded because you take down the mangrove forest. So yeah, that's a that's a little. Uh, snapshot of mangrove forests are extremely important to they live mostly in tropical areas all around the world I'm sorry coast along um, the African coast Ecuador other countries in uh, Malaysia India also and mostly tropical areas around the world and uh, when you deforest that when you 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 chop those down at extreme rates because it takes them a while to grow you completely leave those communities vulnerable, completely destroy the ecosystem, and you remove a source, uh, you remove a carbon sink or an ecosystem that takes, uh, or even an animal that takes a lot of carbon out of the air. So that's what we're going through. That's a major reason why Hurricane Katrina was so bad. And 40 years before Hurricane Betsy was because um, we removed our shield or the shield was removed for to make money. Um, yeah. That's unfortunate. That's why uh, whenever I, it's hurricane season, I'm like, ah, ah, anxiety, climate anxiety. Gosh, I had no idea that that, that the mangrove forests really had a huge impact in mm-hmm. in what has happened today. That's that's crazy. That thank you for sharing that yeah. information with me because that is that's super interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, so it really cool. Yeah. 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 No, you're fine. So I wanted to kind of move into some of your side projects, your social media and things like that. Mm -hmm. But before we move into that, I just wanted to check if there was anything else, um, especially regarding race, regarding anything else that we didn't cover that you think everybody should know about, especially in regards to marine science or just care for other humans in general. Um... Yeah, so there was something I wanted to bring up. Um, I don't think people realize that we um, haven't had... All, women, just marginalized groups, have not had access to STEM fields for as long as uh, the majority, well, let's, see, like, let's just say, like, uh, white men have. So, like, 
when people would say like um, off the hand comments to me, I just, I'm always thinking like, I, well, my grandparents, my, it was illegal for my grandparents to be in the programs that I'm in. Like I, I have history in my household. Like it was illegal for my grandparents, my aunts, my uncles, people who I see to enter these programs. People of color could not enter these programs. Women, all women could not enter these programs because it was illegal, it was segregated. Um, and then even before that, we weren't even considered human for a few hundred years. So we have, um, when people, this is mostly me being upset when people talk about diversity initiatives in a negative light. I'm like, this is not a, a handout, like an unearned handout. This is kind of in a way catch up to make up for all or to, to help us get in or even let us know that this is even a, this is even a route for us. Just showing what's all what's out there for different groups of color because where am I going with this? We haven't had this access for a few hundred years in this country, mostly focused on this country. We haven't had this access for a few hundred years. So if you like, if you ever have like a negative, negative thought towards diversity uh, initiatives, or you think like someone may have gotten like an unearned handout, I hear that handout comment a lot. Um, remember the history of how we got here because only a few decades ago, it wasn't legal for me to be a marine biologist, at least in public. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that's all I want to say. <laughs> okay. Yeah. I think that is really important and you're right. Like these opportunities weren't available and, and we need to make sure moving forward that they are and that yeah. schools have money <laughs> available yes. to do these things too, right? Because yeah. in underserved communities, science isn't necessarily a focus. And, and yeah. so we'll just add that, add that yeah. to the list of things we need to figure out in our country. Oh gosh. Yeah, yeah. that's why I, when I do my uh, teaching, when I was at the, uh, the aquarium out here, I would try, especially when I worked with inner city kids, I would really, really make sure that this is, let them know like, this is a route for you. You can do this as well. Like if, if this is something you want to go into, conservation, any STEM field, anything related to the ocean, you totally can. Just like letting people know that this is a route because it's not, people, people don't even know that this is open for them a lot of times. So yeah. just making sure like in underserved communities that people know, especially kids, like the youth, let them know that this is an option for them. Yeah. Oh, I'm so excited to see all the little scientists you fostered grow up to be real big scientists. I know. So cool. oh, I was, every time a kid would tell me like they want to be a marine biologist, like after, uh, like say one of my shows, I'll be like, yes, I'm training an army. <laughs> I made it. <laughs> That's so funny. Well, moving into then a little bit of your like social media project. Um, I know you have an awesome Instagram. Do you want to share your handle really fast that people can follow you? Of course. It's um, Stardust and Ocean Drops. Sometimes I forget myself. Sometimes I get the order messed up, but it is Stardust and Ocean Drops. (laughs) That's good. And I've seen snippets that you have a new project. Well, two new projects coming out, if I'm not mistaken. I know you have Shark Month that you've been working on for quite some time. And then another project, but I'm not sure if you want to talk about that yet or not. I I can definitely talk about it. I wanted to, I've been trying to think of a name, but I um, wanted to do like, uh, I want to create a space where we learn about people 
in STEM, in histories, like scientists that we haven't really learned about because of who they were, like just marginalized groups. Like I, like, for example, Dr. Gladys West, she was a black mathematician and she created GPS and you don't hear about that in school. And I really wish, really wish I would have known about more black and more just scientists of color in general and more women scientists as well, because there's also unfortunately still a lot of sexism in STEM, but I just wish I would have had this representation growing up. So I'm going to create it so that someone else can possibly see themselves. So um, yeah, that's what I'm working on. Just um, I'm thinking of going with the title, Those We've Forgotten, but I don't know. I think that's taken. I think there's another account that does something similar, but just going over scientists in history that because of the times we, ah, I just dropped my phone. Um, Because of the times we, (laughs) um, we didn't get to hear about them. Yeah. So I know like the first black female marine biologist uh, was not allowed, like she was allowed to get her degree, but she wasn't allowed to work at any, any, she wasn't allowed to work at any of the uh, places to practice marine biology. So is so knowing that history, because she's contributed a lot, but no one um, knows her name. I believe her name is French. So I, I'm not going to try to pronounce it. <laughs> I just know the Ray Fellowship uh, from NOAA. Uh, the Ray Fellowship is named after her. It's her initials. Cool. I, I don't want to embarrass myself. <laughs> yes, I, I don't even try because they they leave out whole consonants, and I'm like, okay, why? <laughs> oh, <yeah. laughs> exactly. That's awesome. I'm really looking forward to seeing that account, and once it's up, we'll definitely post about it on the podcast site and on my site. That's going to be really Thank cool. You. Yeah, I'm and then. Tell me a little bit about what to expect during Shark Month. I'm super excited. Okay, so where did this this started? Because one of my best friends, uh, we always fight about the basking shark. She's going to listen to this later. Yes, I called you out. Uh, the basking shark, which is the second largest shark in the world. And I realized like people don't really, when people think of sharks, they usually think of the great white jaws, bull sharks and tiger sharks. And there are all types of different, <laughs> different sharks out there. And then, by extension, rays and skates, and people don't know how they're closely related. So I want to really, 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 really go into that because I think it's super cool how rays and sharks are super closely related. But people don't really, really think about rays unless it's about um, the uh, the crocodile man who Steve Irwin. Steve Irwin, yeah. <laughs> so like that, that would be like the number one question I would get about rays is like, which ray killed Steve Irwin? I'm like, oh. Oh no! Like, that, there's so much more about them. Whoa! So they're super cool. So that's where um, I want to go. Like, with, I want to. I'm still choosing which species I want to go. I want to kind of highlight species that people don't know about, like the basking shark. Um, I think a lot of people still think the whale shark is a whale. Uh, like the carpenter, sh- the carpet shark, um, the carpenter sharks category. Like, there's so many to go into. And I just want to highlight those and then highlight how like overfishing and climate change is really, really dwindling their populations and also where their negative, uh, their negative stigma kind of came from with uh, the whole history of Jaws and other, other science movies. I was just talking to my middle school, not middle school, my high school uh, marine biology teacher. And I'm like, I wish, I wish we would get called in as like, consultants for movies but nobody wants a scientifically accurate shark movie they want the the megalodon the meg they want <laughs> <laughs> not, not saying that's that's scientifically inaccurate but saying like they want the the, the fear action. 
yeah, then with the, the, the terror and the, the action, the action. So that's, that's why I want to do Shark Month. That's or, so cool. Yeah. Well, I'm really looking forward to it because, I mean, even though I'm a marine scientist, I'm definitely biased from those mm-hmm. movies. And so mm-hmm. I think education will really help me out because I'm terrified of sharks. I'm not going to mm-hmm. lie, but they're not bad, right? They're, they're an important part of the ecosystem and yeah. they're really fascinating creatures. Yeah. Yeah. I think we all have those those biases. Like even when I was young, when I first saw my shark, and uh, first shark I saw was in a Great Barrier Reef when I was fourteen, and I saw it, and like my 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 fight or flight uh, instincts kicked in immediately. I was like, oh, I'm in Australia, especially the stereotype that Australian animals are especially like violent that they yeah, they're out to get <laughs> that narrative yeah that, that they're out to get you. Um, so they, I have to like break down the, my own biases as well. Um, with sharks. So that's what I intend to do. It's like kind of open the world up to sharks because I, I realized, especially like through, through my recent teaching that um, teachings that people kind of have the one view. It's our discovery week. Oh, it's our discovery week or Sharknado or, <laughs> or um, I, I hate to admit, but I actually secretly love the Sharknado series, but I feel like as a marine biologist, <laughs> We're not, we're not supposed to like the Sharknado series. Yeah. Um, I have Discovery Channel, Sharknado, or like uh, Jaw, the Jaws, Hollywood, whatever, whatever they get from Hollywood. So Yeah. Oh, that's going to be super interesting. Well, before we wrap up, is there anything else that you want to share with everybody? The ocean is for everyone. Uh, and we literally cannot. There's not a single person on this planet, even if they think they are, that isn't impacted by our ocean. It 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 kind of controls a lot of our our climate. <laughs> um, the ocean is for everyone, and STEM is for everyone. So if you want to go into STEM, if you want to go into oceanic science, oceanography, marine biology, uh, don't let the naysayers stop you. I know that's much harder, much easier said than done. But again, don't internalize criticism from that comes from negativity and hatred because it's not valid. It's yeah. not valid. So yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Thank you for that. And thank you. I feel like this was such a powerful conversation and really opened my eyes to a lot of things that I didn't know. So just thank you for <laughs> taking the time to sit down with me and have thank you for having me. Uncomfortable, but it is important. So thank you. Thank, thank you. you. And before we stop. Um, do you have a strange fact about an animal or an animal pun that you would like to share? Okay. Horseshoe crabs have nine eyes. If anyone, if anyone didn't know that they have nine eyes, nine eyes, nine, where are they? Oh, um, they have two eye spots. That's like at the front of their shell. And then they have two, the compound eyes are the two big ones you can see. Their tail technically counts because it has is full of uh, photo uh, photoreceptors, photo arrays that helps them sense the change in light. So where am I? Two, four, and then they have a cluster underneath. Oh gosh! I cannot. That helps them. These are simple eyes, so yeah. it doesn't. They, they don't have like you know the developed vision that we do. It's just kind of they can see like light and like oh something's moving over there. Let me let me scuttle away. That's crazy. So, like you always joke about mom has, you know, eyes in the back of her head. They have eyes on their stomach, on do. their tail. And oh, yeah, oh, they God. actually do. I cannot <laughs> remember the exact place, placement of each, but they have them all over their body. And when it, that was when I learned that it was really funny because when I work with them, they're always getting stuck on rocks 
They're always squeeze, trying to squeeze places they couldn't fit. I was like, you really, are you sure you have nine eyes? <laughs> Use them. That's so funny. <laughs> I guess a bonus one since I kind of prematurely forgot would be that um, they are almost, they're like 450 million years old. They haven't um, evolved in about 450, 425, 450 million years. So, Well, if it works, why change it, right? Exactly. They've just been crawling around, running they look much scarier than they are. I'm pretty sure that helps with um, their survival. <laughs> <laughs> I've never seen them in person, but apparently they hang out in Maine. So when I'm over on the East Coast, I'm definitely going to look for them. They are there. They are definitely. When I was in Savannah, we went to an island and just covered. It was during their mating season. And it was just horseshoe crabs everywhere, just all over the beach. So they oh, cool. they exist. They're still there. <laughs> Yeah. Oh my God. Well, thank you so much again. And if people want to follow you on Instagram, could you share your handle one more time? Of course it's stardust and ocean drops. Awesome. 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 Well, thank you so much again for being on the podcast and I look forward to talking to you soon. Of course. Thank you for having me. Bye guys.